Our next speaker is Mark Shapland. Mark is a senior consultant with the Dubai office of Milliman. He joined the firm in 2003 after 24 years of experience at insurance companies and other consulting firms. Mark's area of expertise is non-life insurance, having worked in Europe and in the Middle East. Mark has addressed numerous meetings of the Casualty Actuary Society and other actuarial societies around the world. Mark has recently been elected to the board of the directors for the Casualty Actuarial Society. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, can you guys hear me okay back there? Um, first of all, I want to thank you all for inviting me here today. Thank you to Milliman for bringing me here. Thanks for the committee to, uh, to invite me to speak with you today. Um, before this morning, I had no idea what the program was like other than my talk. Uh, I also then owed a, really a, a debt of gratitude to the committee for putting me toward the end and for ask, having all the topics actually feed into mine. <laughs> so, in a way, every speaker that's talked today already has kind of contributed to what I'm going to talk about here. So, I also then owe a debt of gratitude to all the speakers that have spoken before me. Um, in particular, to the guys that spoke just before me, um, that's probably the most relevant to my talk, but I also owe both of them a little bit of an apology because something I'm going to say is going to contradict some things that they've said, but I mean no disrespect to, to them because in my view what I'm saying is really um, really saying something more like their, what their talk was in my view is a bit incomplete. I've been doing this for quite a while. Um, I've been giving talks on stochastic reserving and stochastic modeling for many years. Um, and one of the things that I've, uh, that I've realized over the years is that um, while I've become known for this throughout the CS and, and speaking on this in, in other places, one of the things I realized is that this has actually changed me too. Um, I used to give presentations by standing behind the podium like a deterministic point estimate. Now I walk around randomly like a stochastic model. So while I'm doing that, you know, you can just kind of see that that's part of, part of my makeup now. Um, so I also want to give you a little bit more background before I get into the talk about something that I've observed over all those years is that risk, I've been to a lot of different countries to, to look at and talk about risk and risk management, what I've discovered is that the fundamentals of risk are universal. Now that statement sometimes surprises people, right? But risk is risk. It doesn't matter where in the world you are, it is the same. Right? That doesn't mean that, I'm not saying that there isn't any differences, but the fundamentals of risk are the same. What is different in every country is culture. The culture adaptation to risk manifests itself in a lot of different ways. A lot of them are legal or just historical, cultural, or something. And one of the reasons I point that out is because the talk I'm going to give you is based on sort of U.S. norms, but while, while I'm talking about it and using U.S. terms, hopefully you'll be able to sort of think, okay, well that really, what he's really talking about, if I talk about a chief actuary role, I'm really talking about the hack, or some element of the hack, or if I talk about risk-based capital, solvency two, you can adapt that to what you're doing here. The differences, again, are cultural, not necessarily fundamentally different. Okay, so let me give you a little bit more background about this talk. This is, talk is based on a paper, um, and this is the outline to the paper. 
But unlike a lot of talks that I give, the paper didn't come first. Most of the time when you do some research, you write a paper and then you're asked to talk about it and present it to other people, but this actually happened the other way around. Um, this, this talk actually started about six, seven years ago when a colleague of mine, Jeff Corshane, who was listed at the front, and I were, were talking about this at GIRO, which is the General Insurance Resource Organization. Hopefully some of you are familiar with that. It's uh, essentially the general insurance group uh, in the UK. Um, and this was many years ago, obviously, which, which had to do with, um, and one of the things we realized, two things we realized in the genesis of this, this um, talk that started was that we felt there was some significant problems with the way the actuaries there were um, quantifying risk, right? Which we're going to, so hopefully that'll come out in the discussion that I'm going to go through. And secondarily, we realized that there was nobody there talking about pillar two or pillar three. So this talk actually started about thinking about what's going on in pillar two and pillar three. Once you get past the quantification issues, which we had issues with, nobody's talking about, all right, back testing and thinking about bringing this into the enterprise risk management of the firm. And so that's kind of the genesis of this talk. We gave this talk for many, many years. And just last year we said, okay, now it's time. We've been refining this. It's time to put it in the paper. Um, so we did that and this, this is the result. So um, I'm not going to go into the, the outline, but I'm, I'm going to give you the talk kind of like we've done in the past, which follows this outline pretty well, but it, uh, it also deviates a little bit. Um, so let me, let me give you a bit more background and start thinking about some of the day-to-day -day issues that you come across as an actuary and some of the things that have come out in these, these talks. So first one is, how good are your estimates? Just how good are they? Right? How, good, how accurate is your estimate of the mean, the standard deviation, when you start thinking about the stochastic reserves and thinking about the methods you use to get there? Related to that is, when will you know how good it is? How long will it take for you to figure out that the estimate was good or bad? Right? That's part of the background by the, between the one-year time horizon. But, but think about it. One of, the, one of the definitions that I heard year, early in my career was that a life actuary can go their whole career and not know whether the assumptions are right or wrong. A casualty actuary will know within a year or two. Right? So this question is very particularly relevant here, but... Some other related questions. When you start comparing your actual outcomes to your estimate that you gave a year prior, however long it was, how far apart can you be and still have a sense that you were reasonable in what you did a year ago? Where's the, where's the, where's the point where you say, wait a minute, I'm too far away? Okay. And when you start thinking about managing reserve risk as a firm, how can you do that without measuring it first? Right? If you're going to try to manage it, you need to understand what it is and measure it. Right? And you need assumption, assessment, and consistency over time. This is the, that's the whole part of pillar two, really. I don't know how that feeds into what you guys are doing, but hopefully it feeds in fairly well. Backtesting. I'm going to expand on this backtesting notion quite a bit. So... Everyone understands, you understand probably from day one as an actuary coming out of school, that the estimate you create is always wrong, right? I have yet to have an estimate come out exactly right. I've been doing this a while. Hopefully, I'm not going to tell you how long, but you can guess it's more than a couple years based on my hair color and density, right? 
And there's a difference. Let me tell you that. I think there's a, there's a big difference, and people need to understand this, between predicting and explaining, right? You need to also think about how do you explain what happened versus how, are you able to really predict what will happen? And are you trying to explain or are you trying to predict? Those are two different, different things you're trying to get to. What metrics do you need if you're trying to ma- manage risk? And can one of the fundamental things as part of this paper is can the reserving process be used to enhance the ERM framework uh, that you might be going, going down? And just linking this back to one of the earlier sessions where we, when we were looking at the professionalism, one of the things that, that occurred to me while I was watching that, and I loved watching those kind of things, was that the whole thing that was lacking throughout that whole thing where everyone was doing the blame game, there's no, there's no ERM framework around any of that, right? So, so that to me is, a, is one of the things that as an actual profession we're sort of going down the path of making sure that that helps create the, the gardening example, the, the pathways that will help us in the future, right? All right. There are a number of things that are out there that have been driving change in this area around the world. I'm just going to give you some of the ones in the U.S. and in Europe. Obviously, you were talking earlier about IFRS 4 and Phase 2 of that. I'm not going to get into that again. Solvency 2, it's been around for quite a while. In the U.S., there's something called the NASC Model Audit Rule, which is having an impact. I'm not going to get into the details. Own risk solvency assessment is coming in, has already started in the U.S., starting last year. I see that it's something you guys are working on. That's something that's, that's really, these, these actually, when we did this presentation six, seven years ago, these were things that were on the horizon, right? Things that were starting to come down the pipeline and we're further along, but I think we're still, still in our infancy in some ways. So let me start talking about this framework. And I want to set the stage a little bit about what you might go through and why. Let's start with a deterministic best estimate for your central estimate. That's, that's, that's been going on for a long time. Actuaries are very comfortable with that. But what we want to do here is to add a stochastic modeling element around that, right, for the unpaid claims. And one of the things that I think is fundamental to this, and I'm going to talk more about this in a few minutes, but is the ability to weight multiple models together. Now, somebody made the comment earlier about chain ladder doesn't always do a good job of predicting. I totally agree with that point, right? And as an actuary, how many of you rely only on the chain, paid chain ladder to do your estimates, ever? I don't, right? So when you start thinking about stochastic modeling, the same thing applies. This is, and this is actually the fundamental thing that we had a problem with in Europe, is that the Europeans were focused on the MAC, Bluefitch and Merits, but that's all, to me, based on a fundamental flaw, which I'll talk about in a little while, which has to do with the fact that as an actuary, right, you know that the different models you use have weaknesses, right? And, if, and it, maybe you not, haven't thought about it this way, but the process of weighting models together is essentially, even in a deterministic way, is a way to address model risk, right? You're saying to yourself, you're making the assumption that this model doesn't always work as well as something else, so I need to give it some weight, but not all weight, right? So that process you go through is fundamental to addressing model risk, and it's fundamental to stochastic analysis too, right? I don't think you can get away with it, get away from it. Now, the other thing about this is we're going to set, be able to set thresholds. You start thinking about an enterprise risk management framework, you want to be able to set thresholds for action. 
This also has strategic implications for the allocation of your actual resources. When you start coming up to high pressure times, as a chief actuary, where do you want to put your best resources? Do you want to put them on the most problematic sector, sectors, right? How do you figure out what those are, other than just seat of the pants? So we're going to talk about that a little bit too, and hopefully you'll see that if you're going along. And within an ERM framework, you have automatic notification of key personnel. It changes the dynamics of what's going on. It provides this prompt investigation. You can think about the changes to your assumptions over time in a very structured way, and we'll get into that. And we're going to really talk about that as a, as a case study for the most part to try to illustrate this. Now let me talk a little bit about backtesting, and hopefully you know, this is very familiar to all of you. Backtesting is just actual versus expected, right? But from a deterministic perspective, the key question is, is the outcome better or worse than expected, right? Did you, did you over or underestimate the result? Or actually, it actually has nothing to do with whether you over, over or underestimated the result. It has to do with directionally, did the actual outcome, in, outcome come in below or above your expectation, right? doesn't say anything about something else, right? So the point estimate, really, is the source of your expectation from which to test your deviations, okay? Now, the expectation can be expressed either as a cumulative or incremental, right? And here's where I start to, you'll start to get to lay the groundwork for my comments in a few minutes, is that when you start thinking about what you do in a deterministic framework, if you're weighting models together, right, and then maybe you're doing some shifting where you say, well, I don't actually like this old result even when I'm use, using these couple of methods because it's misestimating the case reserves or whatever, it's not taking something into account. To me, that's all part of the actual judgment that goes into it. And those multiple methods actually sort of enforce a consistency of expectations, right? You need to think about how you're actually bringing those expectations together and think about the fact that when you give a model weight or no weight in a particular action year, you are fundamentally accepting or declining some of the assumptions that went into that model, right? So this, this whole process, though, was really focused more on direction and magnitude of outcome than significance. It doesn't tell you anything about how significant the deviation is. It only tells you that it's high or low and the magnitude that you're off, right? That's a key thing to understand. Now, you can also think about this, and you can include ranges. So if you have ranges that you've in included for weighted ranges or method ranges or possible ranges, those are different kind of definitions of how wide the range might be and what you included in the range. Um, that's also possible to help give you a little bit more information about what's going on. But, but at the end of the day, that, that doesn't change the fundamental thing that, that from a deterministic point of view, you're still focused on direction and magnitude rather than significance. So here's an example of, of deterministic backtesting. So what I've done here is I've just given you, in the first column, the actual paid. The second column is the expected paid. Now notice this was, this was the expected paid one year ago from a combination of various four different methods that were weighted together, right, and blended together to get a expecta consistent expectation for the first diagonal, right? Think one year time horizon kind of thing. Okay, so one year ago, the expected paid was our expectation, the actual outcome, and the difference then is in the third column. So that tells you about the magnitude and the direction, but not whether it was significant or not. 
Now we can also do the same for the, for the incurred data, right? We, we made projections on the incurred models. We could actually convert each of the paid and incurreds into an incurred expectation, what we expected the case reserves to do. And we can look at that expectation difference between what we expected and what actually happened with the case reserves plus the payments. Or IBNR movement, in other words. And again, it's just the difference. Okay? I can make that more complicated with a range, but I'm not going to worry about that here. Okay? So now when we move to stochastic backtesting, the key question changes. Now we're thinking, is the outcome st significantly different than expectation? Right? How far off can we be and still be okay? That gets back to the, one of the first questions I asked at the beginning. How far off can it be and we're, and we're still fine? It's within a standard deviation or something. Right? So in this case now, the distribution of possible outcomes is the source of expectation. Again, the expectation can be cumulative or incremental. Doesn't matter what, which models you're using, you can, you can convert it back and forth. Multiple models, again, encourages assumption consistency so that you're focused on the significance of the outcome. Now here's where you need to think about that for a minute, right? If you're using multiple models, again, there's no reason for you to not weight them together. There's no reason for you to do the same basic approach you did deterministically. But now you're thinking about not only the mean, but you're also thinking about the, the breadth and depth of the distribution at the same time. Okay? And now, here's where when you start thinking about enterprise risk management, you can start thinking about key performance indicators, and you can look at Thresholds, predefined thresholds that a management could decide on beforehand to figure out when we're going to be notified of deviations that are significant. This is just an example. There's nothing magical about these two different sets. We have 25 and 75, 5 and 95, 0 and 100, basically the endpoints of whatever you distributed. Right? So we're going to use those in our example, but I'll say ahead of time, there's nothing, there's no, we're not advocating those particular ones. Right? It's just a way of illustrating. You could have more, you could have less. Right? So keep that in mind as you start thinking through this. But the idea here now is to assess the materiality of that difference. Right? The expectation is a form of a distribution. Now here's more of an actual distribution, right? which tends to be skewed to the right, depending on your point of view, I guess. Maybe which hemisphere you're in, I'm not sure. But, right, so that, but that distribution, and you just say percentiles, it defines it the same for everyone, no matter whether some lines are not very skewed, some of them might be very skewed, right? The same relative percentiles are then defined premature, you know, automatically through this process. And at the end of the day, you're going to have an observed observation, and you can almost guarantee that it's not going to be the mean value, which is that black point here. It's going to be somewhere out in one of the, somewhere out in the range, right? Could be inside sort of that middle one, could be in, this, in the latter ones, could be outside of it completely. Right? That's all about significance of deviation. Okay? Now there are some model caveats here, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to sort of glance over these, but I will point out a couple things. Again, model assumptions require validation, right? That's what this is all about really, validating your assumptions. Backtesting is all about validating what you did last year, taking another look at it, Assessing whether you were, how far off you were, whether it was significant, whether you need to reassess your assumptions from last year. We didn't, we only really addressed in this particular phase, 
Action year is less than the current calendar year, so we're not including pricing risk in here, although you could include that. We just kept it out for simplicity. This works for gross. doesn't always work for reinsurance. depends on the structure you have. Again, we've, we've ignored some of those things. These are mostly simplifying assumptions to help, help address the, the key fundamentals here, not necessarily trying to make it too complicated so it's not useful. Uh, it works better for high-frequency segments. Um, doesn't say it doesn't work with other ones. It also includes the need to shift results. So if, again, in a deterministic setting, if you've said, hey, my point estimate is off, I need to actually select a number, you can do the same thing with the stochastic modeling, all that's included here. And as we pointed out earlier, I totally agree with this, the ODP paid bootstrap can underestimate the reserve risk. That's been verified by a number of studies, not just the one that was um, written about by Jessica Leon and her colleagues. Um, but I will say there, in other studies that's been verified, and, and by the way, the MAC method is even worse, much worse, in every study that's been, that's been done. Um, but what none of these studies have done ha has have been looking at other variations other than paid ODP bootstrap. But when you start thinking about incurred ODP bootstrap and adding on Born into Ferguson and Cape Cod, which is available, and is <laughs> that's one point of disagreement I have with the prior group is that those models do exist. They've been, exi they've been around for many years, right? And if you're, if you're curious about those, the one paper that was missing from there was a paper I wrote that's now required reading for actuaries in the U.S. The Casual Actuarial Society, which replaced the England for All papers. And it talks about varying this and thinking about opening Warner to Ferguson and Cape Cod and a GLM bootstrap and other things that you can use and you want, you'd want in your toolkit, right? and the whole waiting process. I'm not going to go into that here, but, but I wanted you to make sure that you, knew, you were aware of that. So here's the same file we had a second ago. This is the deterministic version. So now I want to show you what happens when you switch to a stochastic version with the exact same thing. Now look at the two columns with the percentiles. Those percentiles tell you much more about the significance of the deviations. They're not about magnitude anymore. They're about figuring out where you're significantly off. And the two you see there that are in yellow are outside of the 25 to 75, but inside the 5 to 95. And now this happens to be aggregate data, and we'll see some more examples in a minute, right? But that's fundamentally different, right? Now one thing I want to point out is that the, the total unpaid um, by accident year is the same in total between the deterministic and the stochastic, but the, but the incrementals along the diagonal are a little bit different. So if you notice that, that's because we didn't, we are shifting is matching the total, but not necessarily worried about the stochastic variations between the incrementals. It's not that far off that, that we're worried about it, but, but you could switch that. So consistency of expectations really starts with uh, assumption consistency between the models and among the models. That's, I think, fairly fundamental to actuaries. If you set a BF a priori loss ratio, you don't just start varying it from model to model. You want to make sure that's consistent from one model to the next. As long as you're within the same line of business, you wouldn't change the BF between the paid and incurred, for example. Right? That would be, that'd be a no-no. Okay? So that, that's there. The weighting of models, again, is to address model risk. And you're partially addressing rejection of assumptions from different models and accepting them. Shifting is also a partial acceptance or rejection of some of the assumptions. And the future expectation, then, for each data melon is, for example, incremental paid, is therefore really a weighted average of all of your assumptions and all of your method weighting and everything. So it, from start to finish, 
At the end, what, we're, what you need to do is you need to come up with an entire distribution based on all of your processes, right? And throughout what you're going to see in the, in the case study, that's all been done, okay? So I'm, I'm not going to get into the details of how it was done, but that's what's been done in these, this example in the case study. Everything I've said here is true for deterministic and stochastic. Now here's one of the points where I disagree with, with what's going on in, in Europe and to a large degree. Because what I've found, and maybe this is changing, is that what typically, I typically see is that actuaries spend lots and lots and lots of time talking about the deterministic point estimate. They think about weighting and shifting and picking their number. And, they, and after they get all through with that, they say, okay, let's use MAC because it's simple or ODP bootstrap, pay data, and calculate the standard deviation. And we're just going to take that answer and put the two together. Right? It's a simplistic way of getting there, but here's the problem. Right? Everything you just did in the deterministic world involves multiple assumptions, weighting them all together, and when you got to the stochastic element, you just completely threw out that, that out window completely. You just said, the heck with that? And so, at best, it's a partial rejection of everything you went through in the deterministic world, and at worst, it's a completely different set of assumptions. Right? So to me, that's, that's a fundamental thing you need to think through. Right? So as you get to the point where you start thinking about risk margins and so forth, think through what you're doing. Okay? Some thoughts about reserving within an ERM framework. First of all, ERM is a continuous process. This is going on all the time. ERM is about adopting a holistic view to, to review the risk, assess risk, and manage it, deal with it, right? Communicate about it. It's, it's concerned with all risks, not just reserving risk, but we're going to focus on reserving risk here, okay? including those that are unquantifiable or difficult to quantify, so it provides a framework for helping you segregate those. It considers uncertainty from both a positive and negative viewpoint. Doesn't, right? Percentiles are not about whether you had a high or low, got the actual outcome was high or low, it's about how far away you were and how significant it was. It aims to achieve a greater value for all the stakeholders, not just the actuary, right? It considers both the short and the long-term aspects of risk. Now, I can't claim that I wrote this list. That's where it came from. I thought it was very good, but we reproduced it in the paper. The framework, the components, also include a number of other things, which we'll touch on throughout the case study, but it's worth thinking about just to sort of set the stage. Is it includes governance, strategy, identification, assessment, communication, everything that was lacking in that case study before this morning, right? All that stuff was pretty much lacking. It doesn't really change how the actual function manages reserve risk, right? What it does is it formalizes the governance around this process, right? It allows you to have clear, clearly assigned ownership of risk, auditable control of both the models and the conclusions, the metrics that we are, are going to be set up to help monitor and assess the deviations, Efficient allocation of actual resource, I mentioned that earlier, right? Where the significant deviations are, that's where you want to put your best people, right? Or spend the most, most time, perhaps. That's an indication maybe that's, that's where you, your methodology fell down, you just need a more a deeper dive. So now, now let's get into the case study. That's kind of all background to get, get us there. And so to set up this case study, we're assuming that the date was January 4th. You just came in from your 
Christmas holiday or year-end holiday. January 4th happens to be the first workday, so 2016. It's a Monday morning. And in your company, you happen to have complete data available through year-end 2015. So I know that that's the first leap of faith right there. I don't know of any companies that have that data available that quickly, but let's say you do. And then you write three lines. Now again, this could be 20 lines. Three is enough to help make the case study, but not enough to make it too complicated. And we picked three somewhat dissimilar lines, commercial auto, private passenger auto, and homeowners. The data actually all came from um, SNL Financial, which it won't mean anything to you, maybe it won't mean anything to you, but, it's, but it comes from, uh, in the U.S., one of the statutory statements, they have something called Schedule P, which essentially gives you the, the paid and incurred development triangles for 10 years for every company for all lines of business. And so it came from that source. Um, some companies were combined, and we changed the data a little bit to protect the innocent, but it's actually real data that you're looking at, you've been looking at. And the company performs a full review of the unpaid claim liabilities annually, including the uncertainty analysis based on multiple models. So everything that we're kind of talking about, we're saying this is in existence, right? For a lot of companies, even in the U.S., even in Europe, this, this is a bit, we're a bit ahead of the game here. That's not quite where people are yet necessarily. But for this exercise, we're going to assume that that's where you are, that you're doing that annually. You've got all these things in place. And so as we continue to imagine this, that your company has this integrated risk management framework in place, with KPIs based on predefined thresholds. Again, we're using those thresholds as I showed you, but there's no magic to those. And management wants, we like to receive the actuary's best estimate by January 27th, three weeks away. Again, that may be a stretch for a lot of companies, and I'm not necessarily, if it's true here, then it's, if it's a stretch for you, then it's a stretch everywhere else. Believe me, that's, again, it's by design to try to take us into an ideal world in some ways, but Let's think about that. So here's this world that we're in. Here's some of the things we can look at right off the bat. These are our aggregate expectations for the paid and incurred for all three lines aggregated together, including correlation. Sorry, you probably can't see the, the light blue that's off to the sides there, but, but it exists. And you can see that the, that the dark dots are actually within that earlier range, so there was no issue there. Um, here are the three lines, the private passenger auto, commercial auto, and homeowners. Um, for the most part, there's a low one for the private passenger auto, but, but the one that stands out right away is the commercial auto. And these are for all accident years combined, right, for the last diagonal as a whole, not looking at any individual accident years. This is just saying for the entire diagonal, right, that we predicted a year ago, how, how significantly were the deviations? And for the commercial auto, both of them were off to the right there. Our actual, actual outcomes were, were off to the right, Okay. So, if you start thinking about controlling, monitoring risk, here's that graph I showed you earlier for the aggregate risks, right? And for this particular table, we actually have 20 observable outcomes that we can look at and compare them to the thresholds. Any individual accident year, if it's 0%, 1%, that's okay, that's random noise. You got to expect that, right? You've got to expect a certain amount of your observations to be outside the 5 and 95 percentile, right? 10 percent of them should be, 
right? So any individual observation is somewhat meaningless. What we really need to do now is to look at lots of them, okay? So for any one group, you actually have 20 here for this 10 years of data. You have nine individual accident years for each patent incurred, plus you have the, act, the total for all of the years combined, the diagonal as a whole, right? So that's 20 observable outcomes. And as I said before, in this case, 2015 could be included, so we'd have 22 instead of 20 um, if we had included reserve, our pri reserving our pricing risk a year ago and made a projection going forward, but we've ignored that to keep it simple. And of course, because this is, this is aggregate, um, it also implies that there's a correlation assumption in here too, which I'll, I'll talk, to, talk to at the end. So let's start looking at, at what we observed here. So that table... The table is kind of interesting, and there's only a couple of observations there, but let's kind of look at, look at it more from a graphical standpoint. So here's the graph of the paid column, and as you can see, there weren't any extreme thresholds breached. The extreme, extreme thresholds are the dotted lines at the top and the bottom. Those are the 5 and 95. Didn't breach any of those. And you can see it does look kind of random, and you can see that the, the median is a flat line, the 50th percentile, but the expected value is kind of going up, and you can see that should make sense if you kind of think about it. Here's the same for the incurred data. Still no thresholds breached, although there were two outside the 80, outside of the 75 and 25. So one of the questions you might look at here and say, well, maybe we're overestimating uncertainty because we, we should have expected a couple of them in the 5 and 95, right? Maybe, maybe what this is telling us is not only, not that we underestimate the variance, maybe we overestimated the variance. Hard to say, okay? But at least it's a sort of a clue. In fact, what we're doing here is we're looking for clues as to where, where to spend our time. And as part of the process here, this automated system that would be in place, you would get reports, and this is basically documenting what you would, might see. An aggregate risk report talks about who is the risk owner. In this case, it's the chief actuary because it's an aggregate level. Risk reviewer is the chief executive officer. Maybe it's chief operating officer, wherever that person reports to. It defines the thresholds that we're looking at in this report. What are the actual realized values in total? And then the action in your details. So everything you see here is essentially just a more formalized view of what I showed you in that table before. Right? And nothing's highlighted because the thresholds were 5 and 95. Right? We didn't highlight those two cells where the 80, 20, 75 and 25 were, were outside, but we could have had a similar report for that. Okay? And a process that you're going to go through with an integrated system, that would trigger automatic emails to people. The risk owner. This ERM system might set an automatic email to your CEO with copies to your CFO, your chief actuary, saying, hey, you didn't breach any of the thresholds that we agreed to, that we were monitoring. That's good news. Okay? Now let's expand this a little bit and look at all three lines in addition to the aggregate. Here's where we start to see some interesting things. And now we move from 20 outcomes to 80, so we now have a little bit better feel for, for where we were with the total analysis. And one of the things you see here is that line for commercial auto, which is somewhat consistent with what we had before. Overall, they're not too far, too bad, if you look at the total number of expectations on the bottom. So for with, within the 25 to 75, for example, you'd expect about half the observations should be within that range, but, right? which would have been a 40, we actually had 49. Right, within the next band, between the 9 and 95 and 95, but outside the 25 and 75, we'd expect another 
Well, actually, that, this one, the way it's said here is, is outside, inside those outer bands, we would expect to see 90% of the observations, right, or 72 out of the 80. And we actually saw 72 out of 80, right? But outside there, we would expect to see 8, and we actually saw 8. But when you start looking at the details, that's where the commercial auto starts to stand out. It's kind of well outside the expectations for the segment, right? So that's our first clue, starting to look at where are, we, where are the significant deviations that they're all happening, or most of them are happening in commercial auto, okay? So that's our first clue as to where to look, look further. Now I want to actually spend a second talking about one-year time horizon because it actually helps us with something else, right? I'm not going to go into the details because the guys that before me did a good, good job of explaining all the, what the nuances there. But essentially think about it this way. Given that you have actual results in calendar year 2015, we can actually obtain a preliminary estimate of what our new reserve position was based on what we did a year ago without doing any other work. Okay? That's a feature that's, that's there. All the information is there. It provides this early warning on the financials. And it's a measure of the performance of the actual function. Again, this stuff is all actually coming out of the one-year time horizon calculations, and it's there. Let me kind of show you kind of how it works. So here's, here's a, a glance at how an ODP bootstrap might work for the one-year time horizon. Basically, you've got your possible outcomes for the initial triangle. The projections forward include um, estimates of the reserve parameters, the, the age-to-age factors for every iteration, plus the process variance has been added, so that's the green, green bar there, that's the one year of, of expectations, right, or of, of possible outcomes. And then what the one-year time horizon does is, okay, now if we add that random observation of what could happen one year from now along the diagonal to our original data triangle, we can recalculate the age-to-age factors under the same assumptions and come up with a new point, est- point estimate for what the reserve should do and how they would change based on what that is. So that's, think about that for a second. So, so the actuary in a box kind of thing is basically saying we have this simulated possible outcome along the diagonal. We're going to add that to our observed data, recalculate the point estimate, and that's a conditional expectation given a possible outcome of what could happen. Okay? So the one-year time horizon is just the running that 10,000 time and getting all the different conditional expectations of the point estimate for each outcome of the diagonal, okay? So for example, now, now with that information, that information is all part of the analysis you did a year ago. So if, for example, the actual diagonal turned out to be at the 15th percentile, you could go and find the conditional expectation for what, what that meant to the, your change in reserve estimate, right? That's also part of the data in the simulation package you went through. Your original expectation, Without, any, without knowing the future, expect to reserve one year in the future is just your expected reserve a year ago minus whatever you paid, right? So that's saying everything's perfectly, right? So think about that for a second. So the difference then, that's really, that's, that's just the year one, year, your cha- reserve change if you didn't change anything else. You didn't change your ultimates, right? The new reserve is whatever you paid in the diagonal less your ultimates from the prior year, right? So that's the unconditional change in your reserve, that's just whatever you observed last year. And so the difference between them is the conditional reserve based on what you observed, right? So that, that's going to give you 
a change in your reserve estimate based on your observation along the diagonal and the work you did a year ago. Now, you got, I know that's a little bit, if you scratch your head a little bit, I'll let you think about that offline. We can talk about it later. But, that, but believe me, that that's kind of works pretty neat. So here's, here's what we found for this particular data set after we did all the analysis. What we found was that in total, the reserve changed based on the observations for all these and the conditional point estimates based on the actual outcomes, that in total the reserve should go up by about 10 million. But that was driven largely by commercial auto. And that shouldn't be a surprise based on what we saw before, right? How commercial auto was the one was having all the outliers, right? At the high end. So, but now think about, think about this information from an enterprise risk management perspective. This is also an automated email that would be automatically generated to the CEO and the CFO on January 4th before you had your first cup of coffee, right? As a chief actuary, it's saying as a preliminary monitoring tool, our analysis a year ago is suggesting that our reserves may increase to 10.9 million. Sorry, this is in dollars, but it could be in rand or any other currency. The largest increase is in commercial auto of 76 million. Largest decrease is 40 million, right? Actual change will depend on analysis. But think about, think about your job as an actuary now. Before you, did it, before you even had your cup of coffee, the CEO now has a, has a heads up to what might happen, right? They're not, you're not waiting to give him bad news on day 27, right? You're, he has information at day one that you didn't have before, but you've provided it through this system, okay? That's very powerful. Now, because now, now the process becomes... All right, let's talk about what's, what's implied. How do, we, how do we address this? How do we manage this risk? How do we address it? Okay? So that's, again, part of the enterprise risk management framework. So now let's focus on commercial auto. So now, now we're going to start diving in. Right? These are all high-level things we've seen before we, opened, we finished our first cup of coffee in the morning, January 4th. Here's the commercial auto. Notice how different that looks than the aggregate. You see a bunch of yellows. Those are all outside the 75 and 25, but inside the 5 and 95. The reds are outside, are outside the 5 and 95, and there are actually two of them. I'll point these out here. The 0 and the 100, they have a little bit gray behind them. Those were actually outside of the model itself completely. They were completely outside of what the model had predicted in terms of distribution mass possible outcomes. So it's even more than being outside the... 5 and 95, it's outside the 0 and 100, okay? A lot, of, a lot of red there, a lot of information that's helping us figure out what's going on. 2009 to 2014 is really what's driving the higher numbers. And so, as a chief actuary, you say to your, your most senior actuary, okay, now let's look into this, right? Let's sit down and think about what we did last year. Let's think about how do we manage risk better now, right? How do we validate what we've done, okay, and move forward. And one way to do that now is to start doing a systematic check of all the assumptions that went in your model, right? And here's where that assumption consistency is a, a critical, right? If you're going to try to diagnose this and figure out how to proceed next this year based on what you've now observed, you've got to be able to go back through each assumption and say, okay, how did that, how did that affect my answer? And if I change it how, did it, how would it have affected what I did a year ago now that I know something different than I did before, right? Think about how you do that in the Mac world where you've got deterministic point estimate, which you've assumed is the mean, 
and a standard deviation. How do, you, how do you jump? I don't know how to jump between those two things. I really don't. Okay? So to me, that's, to me, that's the critical flaw of that whole process and doing it that way. But let's take a little bit, look, look here at the outcomes. How am I doing in time? Am I getting behind schedule on time? Am I need to speed this up? All right, so I should, should have been paying attention. So here's the actual outcomes. I'm gonna, if I'm going to go a little bit faster, then I want to try to leave a little time for, for questions at the end. So here's now looking at a year ago, there was a threshold that was breached for paid. We have more thresholds and this sort of this pattern here for the incurred that seems like this underestimation. So one of the things you might do before you start digging is, so, well, did, maybe there's something that happened last year we just missed. Let's go back a year and see what happened in 2013 that we might have seen something different. Here's the 2013, actually, just going back one year. And you can see that there's a lot of stuff going around, but there wasn't any clear pattern that would have said, hey, wait, we missed something, right? We might have thought that we underestimated the variance, but, but there wasn't that evidence there yet. So it doesn't, we haven't really figured out what happened, but we, but we still have a sense that maybe the vari variance is un underestimated. Another thing that could be happening, it, doesn't tell, it hasn't told us whether the mean was underestimated either. Maybe the mean's too low, right? It, this, is, this isn't telling us whether it is or not. It's helping us find clues to figure out where to go. As a chief actuary, now here's sort of a, the next level down. Remember the, e the email to the CFO or CEO indicating there weren't, weren't any breaches at the aggregate level? For the chief actuary, no. They might get a different email that says, okay, now based on the, the segmentation, we have some issues that you need to deal with, some thresholds that were breached. Here's where that same sort of report might look. Again, now the, the risk owner is a little bit different. The reserving actuary, the reports to the chief actuary, the thresholds. Now you can see the sort of the, the areas where the thresholds were breached at that higher level. And there would be similar ones for the lines of business. We might also get emails that automatically go out to other people in the, in the firm, right? The actuaries aren't in this by themselves. Right? So here's just three examples. Data quality manager. We see these breaches. There, was there anything going on with data quality that might have led to con contribute to this? Claims manager. We've had these breaches. Anything going on in claims that would help us identify the problem? Reinsurance manager. Any reinsurance issues didn't it get settled quickly? It's not, right? And then you could go on with a longer list. But again, this is about a framework for the entire firm to be talking about risk, not just the actuary. They're all notified based on the same KPIs. They're all thinking about the same issues and helping contribute to what's going on. So we get down and we say, okay, well, we validated this thing last year, so why were we so, so far off the mark? Right? And that's where the systematic review of the assumptions is going to come into play, and I'm going to go through a few of those, but not all of them. So here's sort of a laundry list of some of the assumptions that were in these models. Um, Long-term average lost element factors. Uh, I'm not going to spend too much. Action year independence. That's one of the assumptions that are both the Mac and the Bonnie Ferguson. Heteroecthesious data. If you have never heard that term, don't worry about it. It just means non-uniform exposures. That, that's not an issue here. Exposure growth. Do we have some sort of exposure growth that we might have didn't pick up on? Heteroscedasticity, that just, again, if you're not familiar with that term, it just means um, different variances. So, for example, ODP bootstrap and MAC both assume constant or homoscedastic variance, the same throughout, 
But what if, there, what if the variance was changing over in different film periods? You could check that. We used gamma for process variance in our simulation model. We had initial expected loss ratios and coefficients of variation for the Borneo to Ferguson models that were used in this process. We had a certain weighting scheme that we used. We had a shifting that we've used. Every one of these assumptions now is fair game for us to go backwards and say, okay, how do, that, how do these assumptions sets affect our outcome? And we're going to systematically figure out what's going on. Do we miss some sort of calendar trend perhaps in the data? So let me go through a few of them, again, to try to give you a sense of it. I won't go through all of them. But here's one of the tests for the uh, LDF validation. This also applies to Mac, by the way. Um, these graphs at the bottom are just regression lines through the individual age-to-age -age factors. And if the lines intersect at the, at the origin, then the age-to-age -age factors are doing a good job of predicting the outcomes. If they're not, if it's, if it's going off somewhere, then they're not doing a good job and you should probably abandon it. But in this case, they actually both are pretty good. They're reasonable. So the LDF factors aren't too, too far off, both for paid and incurred. So that was one, we, one thing we checked and it worked okay. We should have been checking that last year anyway. Um, accident year independence. This is one of the tests that's been defined for Mac, but it also applies to the ODP. Checking for um, these graphs, the green and the red, are above and below the median in each column. So you're looking for patterns in there that might be indicating that something was going on in the data that you missed from a calendar year perspective. For the ODP bootstrap, you can also do this for the Mac bootstrap if you had it. Uh, we want to look at the residuals. Those models are based on sampling the residuals with replacement. So we want to look at the residuals in three dimensions. First of all, the blue lines there are the trends in the three dimensions. And so what we're looking for is, are those reasonably stable, right? If, all, if they are, then that's an indication that the model is okay. And again, we would have looked at that last year. We also want to make sure that the residuals do look random, right? There's no pattern in the residuals that we didn't pick up on. That looks okay. And that the variances are the same. Here's where the heteroscedasticity would come into play. That the variances are consistent through across there. They seem to be. Uh, we can look at outliers. In this case, the positive outliers indicate some skewness, but actually one of the advantages of the ODP bootstrap is that it, if there is skewness in the residuals, if you're sampling from them, it's going to put that skewness into the model. Um, normality is actually still good, though, even though they're skewed. And we can check the, check the heteroscedasticity. Now, here's, here's one of the things that we, that we focused on. Everything up to now we, was the things that we thought weren't, didn't, didn't uh, raise any eyebrows. They, were, they seemed to be all in line. Here was for the, a year ago, the management's initial expected loss ratio of 52.9 seems to be low compared to the incurred and paid chain ladders that were just done from the raw calculations. Anybody had that situation where you, management kind of said, hey, yeah, everything's going great, we've put in a great new pricing plan, our loss rates are going to be coming down, you're overestimating. Anybody ever have that happen to them before? <laughs> so so it, this is kind of one of those situations where expected loss ratios maybe went down prematurely, right? And we'll test that. So what we did was, and we also, we also noted that, that that actually has an effect because it was part of our BF models, our BF ODP bootstrap models, which we gave weight to in the last couple of accident years. So that, that model, that is, those two assumptions are kind of related. If we had said the, OD, the, the paid, the initial expected loss ratio was low, but we didn't use the model, then it doesn't, doesn't do good to test it, 
right? So we need to test those in combination. We did use it. It did affect the model. We need to think about how it affected the model in terms of the weights. And here you can see that it was very clearly a driver of that last action a year. Okay? Interestingly enough, when we switched from 52.9 up to 57.5, it explained part of what was going on in 2014, but it didn't do anything for the other years, which kind of makes intuitive sense, right? It only, that was the only one that it really affected. Okay, so it did fix that. It, it brought the, the overall down below 100, but it's still only 98.5, okay? So it, it did have an impact, but not necessarily the impact that you might have thought about ahead of time. It didn't, it didn't necessarily have as strong of an impact as you might have, might have guessed ahead of time. The other part about this that we tested was, well, what about the coefficient of variation around that BF assumption, right? It was correctly pointed out earlier that one of the criticisms of the BF is, well, you don't want to just assume that the operator loss ratio is known. It's a stochastic element too, right? So what we did here was we tested a couple of different variations on how much uncertainty we saw in that initial expected loss ratio. Our actual model had an 8% coefficient of variation, okay, which compared to the basic chain ladder for the ODP actually increased the variance. So remember I said earlier where it was a consumption about, there was maybe a concern about the variance being too narrow? Well, by using the BF and this coefficient variation, it actually increased the variance compared to what it would have done under the just paid or incurred chain ladder. So that's good. And just to demonstrate that, if we went back and said, let's assume zero variance in the a priori, then it would have reduced it. Right, so that's not what happened, but it's just kind of showing you that there was an impact because of that. Now, that doesn't say anything about whether it should have been bigger than 8%, right? We could have kept testing that. We could have said, well, maybe it should have been 16 or something bigger, right? There may have been more uncertainty about the a priori. But again, that, again that's, that's part of this whole process of bringing the pieces together. And, and I think there's probably some evidence to that, that if, there, if we're sort of systematically getting the mean too low and, the, and they're always too high, maybe there's something to say about that. Okay? But as it turns out, the key thing we found when we went backwards was that we had missed a calendar year trend, right? Look at the residuals down here that are circled, right? Look at how the, the average residual is going up over the last several years, right? That means that the model is missing something that's going on along the diagonal just based on paid incurred chain ladder, which is the foundation of all the ODP bootstrap models, okay? So that turned out to be a fairly critical assumption that we hadn't looked at before, or we, had given a we hadn't given enough weight before. Maybe we saw it before a year ago, but said, well, we, weren't, we have only seen it for two years. Maybe we need to wait and see it again, right? You could certainly have, we didn't know whether that was the case or not. But here's what happened when we actually added a new model. We added a GLM bootstrap to the mix. The GLM, if you can see it, so maybe it's hard to see in the back, but there are bars there that say where the parameters are. And there's, some bar, there's a bar there that picks up a parameter in calendar year 2011, which says we're going to start a calendar year trend. And when we did that, for paid and incurred, we found that the, the calendar year trend was either 7.3% or 6.4% starting four years ago, three years ago, that was significant, right? So that whole process, again, this, this is about thinking about the process, thinking about going through in a structured way to go back and reassess what you've done, and we found this. This is not about holding somebody, you know, doing the blame game. This is about managing risk from the perspective of the firm, having a discussion about where you're going, and finding something that happened. All right, now, we've, now we have this evidence. 
We see this in the data. We're giving it some weight now. And so here's, here's the very first time. Oh, well, I haven't got quite there yet. So now we, we re-ran and said, okay, if we'd had this information a year ago, how would that have changed our outcomes? In fact, what we found was that it, that it improves some things, but doesn't necessarily improve everything. So we, we felt like we were on the right track. But again, this is a paper. We didn't want to, we're not going to try to dig in and get everything. But the statistics were good. This helped us find something that we needed to look at going forward. So here's the very first email that someone would manually put into the system. Right? The actuary could write an email now saying, our preliminary review revealed this trend somewhere between 7.5, and 7.5% roughly. Can you guys investigate the claims data for commercial auto and we'll meet in a few days and talk about what you found. Right? It's in a very non-actuarial way. It's saying, hey, we found something in the data. Help us explain it. Right? It's part of the integration of the enterprise risk management process. The last thing I want to touch on now is because we started with correlations at the aggregate, we started the aggregate distribution, one of the assumptions you need to look at every time is if you're thinking, because you're including that, you need to think about the correlation assumption. So based on what we did a year ago, here are the correlations between the segments. Um, we used rank cor pairwise correlation between the residuals. This is just the paid residuals before heteroscedasticity adjustments. We could also look at the incurreds and so forth. For each one of those, we didn't use the incurreds, we could have. For each one of those, uh, we have a p-value. p-value is just a measure of how good that statistic is. And you can read the statistical lingo there, but basically the larger the p-value, the, the more likely it is that the actual, the observed correlation is not statistically different than zero. I know it's a lot, it's a mouthful. But here's, here's from a practical point of view, here's an example. So this 0.352 p-value is telling you that the value, the correlation between private passenger auto and homeowners isn't statistically different than zero, even though we observe something different than zero. And so as an actuary, you can use that information to have made in a judgment. You could say, okay, well, we could have set that to zero. Okay? Maybe we did, maybe we, I don't remember what we did, what we didn't. But, but that's something that over time, again, because you have the aggregate stuff you're looking at, you're worried about, not only are you worried about the distribution of the individual segments, but for risk management purposes, for capital management purposes, right? You have to be worried about the aggregate distribution, so you need to think about these assumptions over time too. And I totally agree that you need to be thinking about something that's not a normal um, correlation or copula. You want, what we use actually is a t-copula, um, and the thing that drives that and it actually helps provide more and more strength to the tail with the same correlation is the degrees of freedom. One of the nice things about that is that if it's the degrees of freedom is 99, it's the same as the Gaussian or normal, but as you get closer to, to zero, it becomes much stronger in the tail. And that's actually, it's not shown here, but that's actually part of the, part of the output of the, the models that we use is the, the p-value estimate too for the, oh sorry, the coral, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the degrees of freedom adjustment for the T distribution. So, I know I went through this a lot very quickly. I don't remember how much time I have left now. I should look at the program. Hopefully I have one or two minutes. And if you have any questions, I'll uh, try to answer or stick around afterwards and answer if, if we don't have time now. There we go. 
Hold faithful. Thanks very much. I thought that was very good, uh, Mark. I, I, Thank you. I think you went through it quite quickly. Maybe just my question. I mean, we're not quite close to the first world standards. We don't have the masses of data, not the established processes. Maybe just new experience. I mean, what are some of the prerequisites before you have the right? I think you have to have a certain amount of maturity around the organization. Yeah. Some of the people have to have certain levels of education. Even if you can think around automated emails that kind of get the heads up, you often find the opposite reaction <laughs> with all yeah. due respect for some CEOs. But I mean, what are some of the prerequisites before we even embark on trying to formalize this ERM framework around our reserving practice? And I mean, it, it's part of a wider framework to control other parts of the risks in the organization. Now, what would you think, when, do you, when will we know it's the right time to start embarking on this in our organization? Well, <laughs> that's the $64,000 question, I guess. Um, I'm not sure when the exact right time will be, but you touched on several points, which are all good. Um, one, you have to have the data and the systems in place. So even in the United States and in Europe, I think most companies are not quite there yet. So what I'm kind of showing you is, is a, I sometimes describe this as, a, as an idealized look at the future, what it's going to be like to be an actuary in 10 years. So um, I don't think that even though I'm presenting it this way, it's, it's not all that common yet. But I think the structure and thinking about where we're headed as a profession is very relevant. So you're right, data issues, learning about the models themselves, gaining familiarity with the models. Think about, think about the process that as a profession we went through just to learn how to use chain ladders, BFs, Cape Cods, whatever else you're using. It didn't, it was, there was a learning curve there, right? You need to go through the same learning curve with all your stochastic models and you learn to gain some confidence in them. Right, so it's not a, it's not a, hundred percent just cut bait and run. It's 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 a building process. It's a learning curve. It's it could take years, could take longer, right? But you got to start somewhere, and with a goal in mind. That kind of that's what this is about. Is to to help help set you on a path that will kind of help you, uh, in the profession really, think about, you know, how do we help manage risk? How do we build? How do we build ourselves more into? this process. I mean, we didn't even talk about how do you build this into your pricing stuff. I mean, there's other, thing, other ways to bring the actuaries into this. This is just one of the, one of the ways. But yeah, I, there's, there's no clear, clear thing. It's just lots of things that need to probably be in place before you gain comfort to get there. Thanks. I think we're going to have to cut it there for time, but please engage Mark afterwards if you've got further questions. I'll be around. Okay. Thank you.